0: Hello and welcome to our TV show here at ICT Spring. It's my great pleasure and privilege to once more introduce you with us, Sean Cleary. Great to have you here, Executive Vice Chair of the Future World Foundation, Steve Whiting. You're going to talk perhaps about embedded finance and more, Head of Payments Technology at Soldo. So just to begin with, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do now with your global think tank?
1: The reason why we created our Future World Foundation when we created it was to try to address what we saw was the primary issues on the global agenda and we defined those as being five. The first one was to make economic activity socially and environmentally sustainable. The second was to reconceptualize poverty and inequality through the lens of equity. The third was to integrate security and from the individual human level through the sub-national, national, national, regional and global levels, recognising that in all cases, what we are trying to do is to reduce vulnerability. Therefore, ring-fencing national security as distinct from human security or community security doesn't actually make any particular sense. It's all intended to reduce the vulnerability of humans. So those three issues are the three drivers then we recognised that there were two things that had to happen to enable that to occur on a collective scale. The first was we had to have a reasonable degree of normative coherence, there had to be some agreement about the rules of the game and how you were going to address these types of challenges across states. And then lastly, but only lastly, you had to reform the institutions of global governance in such ways that they were responsive both to the challenges and to the changed normative framework for that purpose. So that's what it does. And it tries to grapple with the fact that politically we are accountable at national levels. Governments are elected by citizens of individual countries. But an enormous range of the challenges that we face in the world today can only be solved through collective action. So one part of it is data adequacy and a proper understanding of the nature of the challenge, but another part of it is reaching agreement on how to address challenges of quite extraordinary magnitude which can't be done at individual levels. That's how we come at it.
0: Well, with those five topics, I'm sure we could have a a very long and deep discussion. Pausing there, moving to you, could you just introduce Soldo and the work that you do?
2: Yes, thank you, Lisa. Um, well, I think we're coming from it from a, a completely different angle, but the long-term objective is to harmonize with something that is, is uh, appropriate and good for our end customers, ourselves, who are participating in this ecosystem, and we're in technology. So Soldo was started um, before even fintech was a, a word. We, we uh, decided to take the, uh, the internet type of technologies and thinking and methodologies and put onto them financial products. So we chose to take a prepaid card and electronic money, put them together and create a new way of spending money for organizations. And that organization would be a business. So our product is for businesses of all sizes. And uh, we have now, seven years later, around 30,000 customers happily paying and using uh, our product. In Luxembourg, for example, we're here because there could be well over 100,000 companies registered who have a problem of how to access their company money and spend. So we have a solution that would, be, would enable the company to put money onto their soldo product and start spending for their operational banking needs. Um, one, one thing there is that we're using technology to automate. And this is where I think we join together in our vision that we know we're building something very practically but we also have the vision for it to be um, viable in the long term. And that's why we're building our own platforms using our own engineers. We have something like 150 engineers all day focusing on this thing, which is a product, but underneath is a, is a, it's integrating into the ecosystem.
0: Well, just moving back to your vision, and perhaps your example is a little bit easier and clearer than the five pillars that you spoke about because there are so many things that need to be fixed in the world. Well, fixed is a big word. They'll probably never be fixed, but addressed, let's say addressed. And earlier today you spoke about vision, a connected vision, a mutual vision when it comes to diplomacy, for example. So could you speak to us more about how you perceive vision to be collectively agreed on? When you're in these discussions, when you're in these meetings with all sorts of different people on all sorts of different topics in different countries and continents, how do you come to a mutual vision? Well,
1: the terrifying thing <clears throat> is that we usually come to agreement on the way forward, which is all vision is really all about at the end of the day. We only usually do that after catastrophe. So, uh, after the Crusades, Europe was reconstructed. After the religious wars in Augsburg in 1555 and in Westphalia in 1648, Europe was reconstructed. Uh, After the Napoleonic Wars at Vienna in 1815, Europe was reconstructed. Then we tried to do it again at Versailles in 1919, and then of course in Bretton Woods and and, uh, San Francisco in 1945. But it always takes, a catastrophe before you can actually go and reset the canvas in the sort of way that you need at a particular point in time. And up to that point, what we tend to do is we push the system within the parameters that we agreed previously. Now, whenever you do that, uh, anyone who understands innovation or disruption in the context of technology understands very well that doesn't work. It works up to a point and then it breaks. And broadly speaking, we're at that sort of point now in terms of the international system. We've been applying the same rules based largely on what was agreed in 1944 and 1945 and then adapted in 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and we've pushed it up to the present. Meanwhile, technology has changed fundamentally Connectivity on a global scale has been completely transformed. Governments have been disempowered in very significant ways because much of what takes place, the financial world is a splendid example, is driven by global forces, not local forces. The Luxembourg economy is terribly important if you're the Minister of Finance or the Minister of Economy, but it's actually not driven too much by Luxembourg. It's actually driven by the global economy in a very profound way. And the same thing applies everywhere else. So we're at a point where we actually have to rethink the premises profoundly, act in a disruptive way that isn't too destructive, and develop innovative solutions. Are we likely to do that? Yes, in part. If I were terribly optimistic, I would say we could probably pull it off across all landscapes, but it's very unlikely. We're probably going to hit the wall in a few places, and I think what we've seen with the invasion of Ukraine is one of the first examples of those sorts of problems. These knock-on effects of that are going to plague us for quite some time.
0: I was very struck by what you said, which is that sometimes we... Well, you actually said we only address issues, big issues, after a catastrophe. When it comes to ideas like climate change, for instance, and when it comes to the situation we have in Ukraine right now, this wasn't unforeseen. We've had a build-up, we have knowledge of this, and we've known for a long time that we shouldn't rely on fossil fuels. We have technology... But sometimes we don't have that impetus to make the changes. So these step changes sometimes come about after great disasters. But in your role, how can we try to fix things? Or again, I shouldn't use the word fix. How can we try to change things, address things before the point of disaster?
1: I I think one's got to recognize how humans behave. and If you simplify it dramatically, you can say that all humans are driven by essentially three forces. The first is fear, and that's why we've survived as a species, because if things in your peripheral vision didn't cause you to react, then you probably would have been eaten a long time ago. So fear, which is driven by the amygdala, sitting here at the back of your head, which then causes a reaction in respect of your adrenal system, is a fundamental driver of human behavior. The second fundamental driver is what you can think of as want, and if it's not entirely inappropriate, that covers the entire spectrum from lust through greed. Uh, It's why, again, we survive as a species. The squirrel hoards the nuts ahead of winter and obviously we propagate in order to enable the species to continue. So that's a fundamental driver of human behaviour. And then the third is social empathy. And women are much better at that than men because it's related to a particular hormone, oxytocin, which is released during breastfeeding. And the most fundamental bond that we know of in human society is between mother and infant. So those three elements comprise the human system in the simplest of terms. When we get out of balance, when greed takes over or fear takes over, then the system starts to wobble Dramatically. And that's where we are right now. We've seen two incidences the dot com boom and bust, firstly, and then the global financial crisis, which were driven fundamentally by greed. Uh, that's the reason why we got these extraordinary social inequalities. It doesn't really matter what set of data you take, but the 1% and the 99%, or the 0.1% and the 99.9%, whatever reference points you use on the one hand, and then the sort of thing that we've seen in third world environments for an extended period of time, but haven't seen in first world environments since the second world war, what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. Driven by fear. Right? One part of it is an aspiration to extend empire back to the period in the 1900s when Alexander III held sway over a significant portion of the European landscape. And another part of it is, I think, or was, I think, an authentic fear that NATO was encroaching and confining Russia's space. Disastrous consequences on an enormous scale, apart from the loss of life, apart from the destruction of civilian infrastructure, the displacement of refugees, the impact of the sanctions is causing crisis in energy markets, in supply chains, in food markets, uh, and, of course, in financial markets around the world. So we've got to create, if we want to induce change in a constructive way at any point in time, a mixture of incentives which encourage constructive behaviour and penalties which discourage it. Getting that right collectively is, in principle, the responsibility of institutions like the United Nations Security Council. When you have vetoes in the United Nations Security Council, it becomes very much more difficult to do that. And although there were some efforts to sidestep that problem by using uniting for peace resolutions in the General Assembly of the United Nations, quite frankly, the Security Council, and I'm afraid my friend, the Secretary General, Have been missing in action during much of what we've seen in the past several months. So here's an example of fear triumphing, just as we saw earlier examples of greed triumphing. We've got to get social empathy back into the center of the equation in a meaningful way. Hedley Bull famously said a long time ago that a global community consists of a community of states recognizing reciprocal obligations to one another and agreeing to be bound by the same rules. We've got to get back there. We've been there in the past, we've lost it at the moment.
0: Uh, On the point of empathy, it's very much trying to understand another person's mindset and as you spoke so eloquently earlier about another person's narrative, the narrative of the life that they are living inside, what they've come from genetically, culturally and environmentally and on the point of Russia it may not just be an expansion empire but we also have of course that, that line down to the Black Sea, right. the ports and Crimea etc. But when it comes to sanctions a huge part of this that has been spoken about comes on financial sanctions and the things that can happen from a technological point of view which is even stronger nowadays than any warfare potentially. So financial instruments play an enormous part in modern, the armory of modern warfare. In a way, can you speak to that, Steve? Well,
2: I, I would agree that the the uh, the whole uh, horizon is incredibly complex. There's a there's a lot of multi, lot of factors more, more than we can actually. Compartmentalise and put into understandable component pieces, and it is highly valuable to be able to consider catastrophe as a, a, a focal point of change. So these are the change drivers, the inflection points, or the epoch that actually forces societies and uh, individuals to change within that ecosystem. And that one of the things we have to rely upon is the existing processes and the existing norms, and within the financial industry. That's the regulator. So the regulator is there to protect the consumer and to um, enforce a a law and the decorum within these institutions. So you have the whole process that's then again technically enabled. And it comes down to pretty basic or simple to understand component pieces. You have the onboarding of a customer, which is the know your customer. You have intelligent systems that can enable that to be done automatically and to deal with exceptions instead of having to speak with every single applicant for a financial product. And those things, in the end, are manifestations of component pieces that are, that are commercially viable from artificial intelligence. And I remember 30 years ago, I studied uh, computer systems engineering, which was an engineering discipline. And when we studied AI, we went over to the arts part of the university, and it was a philosophical discussion about the future. Well, we're there now. And, and so technology is actually a fundamental component of the social change that is coming about now. And I think all these things come together. So yes, we, need, we have the catastrophe that is the change driver. We have the social uh, imbalances that need to be addressed. We have fewer people working and more people being um, assisted by technology, but then being displaced. And we're, we're at a unique place in human evolution, really. where we more than any other generation before us, have one foot in the past and one in the future. So, whereas until now, technology was to make things, to use, and then today it could be seen to be to make things to interact with and to automate. Tomorrow it would be, technology will take the place of the things we're doing. That's the shift that we have to deal with, and that's, the, that's a, a, a task for everybody and everyone around the same table to make this happen politically and socially. So you can see the the social changes. You can look at Cambridge Analytica as an example of one small thing that happened quite a long time ago, highly disruptive, highly noticeable. And that kind of power will actually help to be a force for good, to enable the custodians of that technology and those social changes to harness that and to make people's lives better. But it won't be an easy process. It will be a revolution it would be, it would be very difficult to to uh, to see through and will require participation of a huge number of people who are pointing in the same direction
1: there 's two things on it I, I agree with i think every uh, part of the proposition that you 've advanced, but there are two things that i think one has got to take into account technological disruption is usually a driver for social and political disruption <clears throat> think, of, <clears throat> think about the the Industrial Revolution between 1760 and 1860. We saw in the course of that the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, the Congress of Vienna, the revolutions of 1848, and the complete transformation of the British political system in order to avoid a revolution. At that point in time, we had less people with 12 years of schooling on the planet than we have postdocs today. So the scale of these revolutions, information technology, biotechnology, nanotechnology and neurotechnology intertwined is going to be vastly more disruptive than anything that we've experienced in human history. And unless thoughtful persons like yourself can get ahead of that curve, and anticipate meaningfully how we're going to manage it socially, the disruptive effects are going to be more or less inevitable. It's perfectly clear, it brings extraordinary opportunity, but it is going to be hugely disruptive in respect of its social impact. And I think that's why your original question is an extremely perceptive one.
0: I wanted to ask you, with all of the work that you've done, I mean, I'm actually I'm going to jump in and ask a slightly sidestepped question, but I'm sure it's related to everything. And you'll edit
1: it the way you want it, I'm sure.
0: Well, I, I may not edit anything because you answer so eloquently everything, but when it comes to your time in Iran, you studied in Iran, I want to ask you about that because it seems like such a fascinating country. I know we have a number of people actually working at List from Iran, for example, and at the moment the country is not doing politically so well, and it seems like such a shame... Well, uh,
1: <clears throat> Iran <clears throat> Iran is a civilization with nearly 3,000 years of history. Uh, when we were there, and we were obviously there during the period when uh, the Shah and Shahbanu were still on the throne, the revolution occurred in 1979 in Iran and brought Ayatollah Khomeini uh, in a new dispensation with absolutely grotesque human consequences uh, into power, but when we were there, the then Pahlavi dynasty celebrated the 2500th anniversary of Iranian civilization, and that's not an overstatement uh, in respect of the underlying reality. That gives a community a sense of historical identity that gives it fairly extraordinary cultural resilience through extremely difficult times. So that's the big advantage that Iran has got. One part of that heritage is associated with the split within Islam between Sunni and Shia, which happened uh, shortly after the death of the Prophet, and that defined an outlier position within the Muslim world for a section of the clerisy of the Iranian state. That is what the Ayatollah Khomeini capitalized on. He was also horrified, I think he genuinely was horrified by the progressive steps that the Shah was taking at that point in time. The Chador had essentially disappeared in terms of the veil for women. Uh, Boys and girls were being educated together in school. Boys and girls were swimming in the same swimming pools and going to the same beaches. Sport was being conducted in an integrated way. And there was a fundamental transformation which was antithetical to the limiting constraints of, let's call it mainstream Shia, uh, theocracy at that point. That's what Khomeini capitalized on. It's caused 30 years of absolute chaos. There was a period when uh, uh, another president uh, was there for three terms in the mid to late 1990s, when I think, frankly, if the West had capitalized more sensibly on the opportunity, we might have brought this to an end earlier. We didn't. And as a consequence, we've dragged it out into the present. The diaspora that you were referring to in part is in Luxembourg, is in Hornby Hills, is in Beverly Hills, is in Paris, is in Geneva, is everywhere in the world. Some of the smartest, most highly educated persons in the world are part of that community. And the circumstance within Iran has been pretty miserable for the majority of people for a long period of time. But frankly, it was a case of an ambition to modernize a still largely rural and traditionally oriented society very fast that led to the revolution itself. The bazaar and the mosque joined hands to resist this transformation of the society and we got this ghastly revolution that uh, came in its wake.
0: I just wanted to jump on the back, two questions and you can answer them as you want to. You have South African heritage. I would like you to tell me, in your view, how South Africa has been doing. I mean, i visited a few times in the last 20 years. I love South Africa, but I have my own views, but not as deeply rooted as yours, how it's doing as it's moving into its new future state. And I also wanted to ask you, when it comes to a situation like Iran, particularly with your think tank head-on, what responsibility we as external citizens, but we really being the the diplomats have to jump in, at what point should they jump in to try to alter the course of a future they think is not a good one?
1: Well, in, in a certain sense, once again, it's a terribly perceptive question because that is the common element of the question in terms of both Iran in its transition and South Africa in its transition. The South African transition occurred in, it essentially began around about 1986-87 and it occurred in a particular context globally. It occurred in the context of Gorbachev uh, having become the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, having announced Perestroika and Glasnost, and having ended proxy wars that were being financed by the Soviet Union also in southern Africa. So at the Kabwe conference in Zambia in 1985, the then-Soviet ambassador who also worked for the KGB, head of the fourth division's uh, Africa section, uh, indicated to the ANC that there would be no further funding from Moscow for the armed revolution. The South African government, as a result of the fact that it was under... uh, arms sanctions at that point in time from the vast majority of the western world and was fighting in Mozambique, was fighting in Namibia, was fighting in Angola, had reached the conclusion that it couldn't maintain its position in that way any longer. So, uh, in the words of Bill Zartman, who taught conflict at CSIS in Washington for many years, the conflict was ripe for resolution. And a few of us who saw that and thought it was important to try to address that issue jumped in, and within five or six years we had a national peace accord, we had a convention for a democratic South Africa meeting every day of the week, and by 1994 uh, we had a new government elected for the first time in history on a universal franchise basis, and we had a constitutional framework which was a remarkably balanced and quite far-sighted. Uh, constitution for the time. Certainly it was universally regarded, I think, in constitutional law terms as being the most advanced constitution in 1994. So that was very good. The problem is that in all countries, if you wish to be successful, if you wish to advance the well-being of the citizenry and those who are going to invest in the country, you actually have to get five things right. The first thing is that you have to have a reasonable degree of safety and security because otherwise people can't go about their ordinary lives. The second is that you have to have decent physical infrastructure, water power, transport and ICT, because otherwise you can't extract value out of the opportunities. The third thing is you have to have good human capital and that's a function largely of basic housing, healthcare, and education and training systems of high quality. The fourth thing is that you have to have policies that encourage people to put capital at risk in search of reward, because otherwise nobody will invest. Not your domestic investors and not your foreign investors. And all of that requires the fifth thing, which is solid institutions. So the central bank has to be good, the court system has to be good, uh, opportunities for settlement of disputes have to be effective outside of the court system. All of the things that we take for granted in advanced societies. Luxembourg's a splendid example of all of these things in every fashion. The difficulty was that in South Africa, what went wrong first was the delivery of human capital. So the education system wasn't capable of producing enough additional skills such that when the indigenization and uh, blackening, for want of a better phrase, of the economy under black economic empowerment began to occur, there weren't enough highly skilled people to fill all the positions in the private and public sectors simultaneously. We saw the cracks emerging at the municipal level first, provincial level second, and eventually at central government state uh, institutions. And that obviously has contagion effects in respect to the quality of the power utility, the transport utility, the other elements of physical infrastructure and then it starts to make a bit of a mess of policy making and that leads to further contamination in respect to the political system as a whole. Those are the challenges that South Africa is facing at the moment. Those are the reasons for those challenges. I don't think we've reached a point where it's not possible to turn the ship. I think it is possible, but it's going to require roughly what we were talking about on the global scale earlier. You have to have a collective understanding of the nature of the challenge. You have to have a clear understanding of what you need to change to fix it and then you have to have the political will and the social commitment uh, to be able to move forward to make it happen. In Iran, there was clumsiness all the way through. There were things that could have been done to prevent the revolution, and there were things that should have been done in the aftermath of the revolution, particularly during that period when the then president was looking for a reform path out of the theocracy. Unfortunately, because of the very fraught relationship between the United States and Iran over an extended period of time, Iran had been the United States' second Israel in the Middle East, and as a consequence of that, emotions were intense. The Iran, Iranian revolutionaries, the student revolutionaries, took over the U.S. Embassy and having taken over the U.S. Embassy, kept U.S. diplomats hostage for an extended period of time. Jimmy Carter sent helicopter special forces into Iran to try to rescue the hostages, failed dismally, and that was one of the factors that contributed to his loss to Ronald Reagan uh, in 1980. Um, So, Washington never quite got a grip on how to exploit opportunities that were emerging in the landscape uh, in Iran over an extended period. And it's become very much more difficult after the introduction of the nuclear program and then Mr. Trump's decision to cancel the JCPOA uh, a few years ago which caused the Iranians to believe you couldn't trust the Americans, you could never trust the Americans and as a consequence you've got a lot of stupidity on the Iranian side as well. So uh, external intervention, great idea, but it's got to be shrewd, smart and sophisticated and you have to understand the workings of the society very well if you're going to engage in that way.
0: Sean, thank you so much for giving us extended time on your part. I know you're a very wanted man around these places for all good reasons, so it's really, really wonderful. I feel like you should be doing a history podcast or documentary series.
1: I'm sure nobody's really interested.
0: (laughs) I think many people are interested. Thank you so much.
1: Most of us have to worry about what's happening next week and the week after that rather than what happened 700 years ago. (laughs) Well,
0: thank goodness we have people like you to keep us abreast of the situation backwards so that we can learn what to possibly do going forwards.